not graduating? No. Oh. No. If, you, you're, if you're graduating in December, then right. yes. I'm saying like support or no? No support, just you. you. When they gra you, you graduate, you earn it. I got it. That's how this works. <laughs> All right. Um, let me make sure I'm getting this up and going. We've been having some technical difficulties lately that we definitely want to avoid um, tonight. So tonight we get to talk about one of my favorite kind of things to talk about actually is is marriage. That's our topic tonight. Um, and if you are new tonight, or maybe it's been a while since you've been at the table, we've been in this series, and we've been doing things just a little bit differently. So let me kind of walk you through what tonight's going to look like. Um, we are going to spend the first 15 to 20 minutes talking about um, what, what the world says about marriage, and kind of what, what the world believes about marriage. Um, and then we'll take a quick break, and then Drew's going to talk to us about what the Bible has to say about marriage. Um, but I just want to let you know, we're, there's a very intentional reason that we did that. And it is because, whether you're aware of it or not, the way that you grew up, your experiences, the home you grew up in, um, the entertainment that you, that you watch, the media that you consume, these things um, teach us what, what normal looks like. And if we're not careful um, on important topics, we can buy into what the world says about them. And so that's why it is so important as we are walking through kind of what the world has to say about marriage, um, a couple of reasons. First of all, I want you to be thinking about where, where do I land? Where, where, without maybe me realizing it, where have I allowed the world to shape some of my thinking? Um, and, and to be ready to have an open heart to hear what God has to say about marriage and maybe where I need to change my mind a little bit to be in line with what he has to say. Um, but also just so that you can recognize it when it comes. Um, because so many times there is not just a, okay, I've got this belief, I, I firmly believe this, you know, and, and that's it. I don't ever have to work on this anymore. No, like as, as you go on in life, um, be reminded of the things that you're learning tonight. Be reminded of what it is that the culture is, is trying to say and the way that it is trying to shape things in you. Um, it's important that we're, that we're aware of those things. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, okay, why, we're having a, you know, a night on marriage and almost nobody in here is married, right? What's, like, what's the point of that? Um, well, if you were here last week when we talked about singleness, probably a lot of you will get married, date or get married, so it does matter. But even if you don't, you love people now, and you will love people who are married. And it's important that we understand what God has to say about that and that we be able to come alongside of those people and love them well um, and walk through things with them. So bear, bear those things in mind. Um, so just a little bit of background on me. There have been a lot of new faces the last couple of weeks, so if you don't know me, my name is Rachel Vincent. Um, I have been married to my husband, Ryan. He is wonderful. We've been married for 10 years. We've been happily married for seven years. <laughs> so, and I, we can laugh about that, you guys. It is not even a joke. So it is, it is completely true. So I, I, as I'm like taking you through some of these things tonight, um, I'm, I'm able to share some of the experience um, of, of when times were hard for us. And, and so much of it stems from not having a view of marriage that was grounded in what God has to say about it. Um, and so I'm totally willing to look like an idiot up here if it means that maybe I can save you from some of that same fate. So, um, but, but it is true. Those first few years were, were really hard for us. Every single anniversary that we have, um, it is starting to get a little old, but my husband does this thing 
he does this joke sometime during the day. He'll give me like a sweet little kiss and he'll look at me in the eyes and he'll say, being married to you has felt like 10 minutes. And he's quiet for a minute. And then he says, underwater. <laughs> so anyways, by the grace of God, we really have moved through a lot of things in our marriage. Um, my marriage is a huge source of joy to me and I, and I am thankful for it. But, but we've learned a lot. The other thing is, kind of as I hit on before, I even now, even though I know the truth, I even now find myself sometimes struggling through um, some of the ideas that we're going to talk about. They can seep into me if I, if I am not careful. Um, and so this is even just a great reminder for me as well. But um, the three views we're going to talk about tonight, three, three different views that I think the world really holds. Um, and the first one is this, and I think it's, right now, I think it probably is still the most common in our culture. But it says this, um, it says that marriage exists to make me happy. Marriage exists to make me happy. And it starts like as little kids, right? Where's Sarah Taylor? Me. Disney, oh. right? Yes. So sorry to throw them under the bus. But it starts even as little kids um, in the things that, you know, those fun little films that we're watching um, that teach us that there is, we have a soulmate, that there is one person right? That, I mean, we're just going to be like puzzle pieces. We're just going to click. We're going to get each other. It's going to be amazing, right? We've got to find this person, the one, right? You hear that? We've got to find the one. Every romantic comedy ever, okay? It's in there. Actually, I think pretty much every, just about every, unless it is action-packed and even sometimes still then, but there is this, this perfect love kind of that we see that is, that is worship that, that teaches this idea that marriage exists to make me happy. Um, and this, uh, of the ones we're going to talk about tonight, this was by far the one that I, I really fell for. Hook, line, and sinker. I absolutely, I don't think I would have said it in these words. Um, and I love Jesus when my husband and I got married. But we were super young. We were 20 and 21. And I have this super embarrassing story to tell on myself. But this is genuinely what I thought and, and how I felt. And as I was kind of preparing, I thought, yeah, that really sums it up. Um, so as we were engaged, we were kind of sort of long distance. I mean, I lived in Edmond, so it's about an hour. Ryan lived here. Um, and I was talking to my mom. We were a couple months out from the wedding. And, you know, you've been, you've been doing everything. You've been getting everything ready. I could not wait to be his wife, you guys. Could not wait to be married. And everyone that told us that our engagement was just going to fly by, liars. Those people are liars. It was dragging on, and I was just ready to be his wife and to be with him. And so I'm having this conversation with my mom who's a super godly woman. Um, and as, you know, I think I'm probably just kind of sharing some of that with her of like, man, it just feels like it's taking forever. I'm ready to be with him. I'm ready to be his wife. And my mom sweetly and sincerely looks at me and she says, gosh, can you not just like, I know you love him so much. Can you not wait to be married and able to live with him every day so you can love him and serve him? And I thought, <laughs> are you crazy? <laughs> I think I was like, sure, mom, you know, but I kid you not, in my head, I was thinking she clearly does not understand our love because this idea that I would be serving him is absurd. I did believe that <laughs> that marriage existed to make each other happy. And I knew, you know, that I, I knew, I thought I existed to make Ryan happy, but I thought it would go something like, um, 
I just needed to exist. And basically, <laughs> that would be the gift. Like, that would be all that he would need. My friendship, you know, I would stimulate in conversation. Um, and I would just exist, and he would be complete. Um, but I had a much longer list for him. There was going to be a lot of things that he was going to have to do <laughs> to complete me and, and to make my happiness, you know, where it needed to be. And so um, that, was, that was genuinely, like, that is what I thought entering our marriage. And I think that it was the root of so many um, struggles that we had and, and just a lot of... Um, a lot of issues. And, and here's the problem, you guys. When we believe that marriage exists to make me happy, when we hit those rough patches, all of a sudden, marriage isn't doing what it's supposed to do anymore, says the world. So I better get out of it because I need to be with somebody who's going to make me happy. Because if that's the point of marriage and we go through these seasons where marriage isn't living up to that, then there's a problem. So we bail. And what I don't want you to hear me say as I'm talking through this view, I don't want you to hear me saying that you can't be happy in marriage. Again, I've told you guys, like I, my marriage is a huge source of joy to me, and I, and I give all the praise to God for that, and I'm so thankful, and, and I'm, um, I worship him for that. But it's not the point. And were I to be in an unhappy marriage, okay, um, that does not mean that I could not live a life that was glorifying to God and, again, be, be complete in him. Um, the other view that I think, uh, I think this one is on the rise. I think it's getting more and more common, and it, and it says something like this, that marriage doesn't matter. It's kind of this apathetic, like, we don't need a piece of paper to define our love. We get to decide what our love looks like. Um, in my former life, when I worked in the corporate world, I actually I worked with a girl um, for a long time. When I met her, she was not a believer. Um, she is now, praise the Lord. But at the time that I met her, she had been living with her boyfriend for something, something crazy like 10 years. Um, they, had, they had just been living together and did not, want, um, did not want a label to define them, did not need to be married. They knew what their commitment to each other was. Um, and as I was kind of just talking with her, through, like, why was that? Because she is a believer now, so we can openly have these conversations. Um, and she gave me permission to kind of share her story tonight. But in just talking with that, that out with her, I think the thing that she said that I think sums it up the best was she said, it just felt so final. It just felt so final. And I think that's kind of the, the underlying root of this view is it's not, it's not hostile toward marriage, but it is just very much, yeah, you know, we just, we don't, we don't need that. We know we're committed to each other. We know where this is going. We know how each other feels. Um, we get to decide how our love's going to look, and we get to decide um, what our life is going to look like. Um, and crazily enough, my friend actually did get married. And again, I think this just even sums up this view. You know why? She still is not a believer. They got married for tax purposes. Because we can keep more money if we go ahead and sign this piece of paper. So that's why they did it. They signed the piece of paper, um, just kind of like, yeah, we'll get more money back in our pocket. But again, we don't want this label. We don't want this defining us. We get to say who we are. The other view that I think that we that I think that we see a lot um, says something like this: Marriage would make me unhappy. That marriage would make me unhappy. 
And I, I really do think that this particular review stems from two different things. Um, I think the first one is a selfishness, pure selfishness. Um, whenever Ryan and I uh, first got married, the first two summers we were married, we lived on the East Coast. And if people here thought we were crazy for getting married young, we were like an anomaly there. I mean, people just, nobody was shy about telling us they thought we were absolutely crazy. They just thought we were psycho. Um, and I, one, one guy that I worked with, um, I remember him talking with me and, and he found out, you know, that I was married and he's gasping, you know. I mean, he really was putting on a show about it. He cannot believe it. And then he said these words to me. He said, I think he was, I think he was maybe 25. He said, I have a kid. I, that's enough responsibility. I cannot imagine being married, right? It's, it's a little backwards. But that, but, but that is the view. That is the view that says that I can have all the benefits of marriage. I can have a family. I can live with this woman. I can do what I want, but I'm never going to actually commit to her because then she would have a say in how I spend my time, how I spend my money, the way that I live my life. I mean, this view selfishly says um, that, that marriage would wreck me because then I wouldn't be in control. I want all the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage, which I think you'll find Drew saying here in a few minutes is, is, no, is no benefit at all. But that's, that's what this view says, that he did not want, um, he did not want to, to be limited. I don't want to be limited to one person. I don't want to have to come home and answer for the things that I've done. I want to live independently. I want to be free to pursue my own goals in life, my own dreams, and I don't want somebody that's going to get in the way of that. And so I will have, um, I will have a relationship with someone. Um, and as long as things are going fine and they're not getting in the way of my plans, then we don't have an issue. But if they do, I'm free to leave because nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's the selfishness. That's the first, that's the first reason, I think, that says that marriage would make me unhappy. The second one, I, I understand a, a little bit better. I think it stems from a deep fear. So if you are somebody who um, grew up in a home where your parents got divorced and that was really, really hard on you, maybe you never saw how a good marriage worked. Or if you are somebody who lived in a house where the people were married, but you lived just in a cold, empty home where your parents didn't love each other or even like each other, and it's going to be a lot easier for you to kind of slip into this marriage would make me unhappy, and I don't want that. Um, there was another girl that I met um, on the East Coast that this, this was 100% that was her story. And I remember her just kind of explaining to me that my parents' divorce was so hard on me as a child and had wrecked me so much um, that I just cannot imagine that working out. And yet, I do want a family. And so she had come up with a solution in her own mind um, of how to have children. She had decided that she was going to unromantically have children with her gay best friend um, and his lover. And I remember her like explaining this to me, and she was so excited, telling me, like, it's going to be so great that because there is no romantic love, like my kids are never going to experience the pain of divorce. Because in her mind, as long as there was no, you know, unromantic love, then things were still going to work out, which that's a whole other story. But this, in her mind, this is what she had done. She had just, she was so afraid 
Um, and she had so bought into a marriage is going to end in divorce anyway that she, that she could not fathom entering into that. And she was convinced of this, that marriage is going to make me unhappy. That's where she was at. We're going to take a break, but before we do, I just I really want to challenge you guys to think through um, the way that you grew up, your own experiences, and to say, which, which one of these do I lean towards, and why is that? And be very, very open. I pray that we would be very, very open to having hearts that are ready to be molded by the truth of the gospel and by what it is that God has to say about marriage. So take a quick break. Drew will be up here in just a minute. Okay. What? <laughs> All right. Okay. Hey guys, real quick. Let me have your attention. Listen up, listen up. All right, I'm here to put a little bit of pressure on you about coming to help paint Saturday. So I would actually like to see a raise, like hands raised if you can help paint Saturday at the church. Okay, one, two, three, four. That's a, I see that hand. Five, six, seven. Can I get ten? Can I get three more? Come on. I need three more. You can show up. You can show up for an hour. You can show up for four hours. Yes, yeah, two. Anytime between eight thirty and anytime between eight thirty and three or four. All right. Eight. No. Seven. Eight. Nine. Eight. Nine. I need one more. Wait, Actually, nine? you had eight, nine, ten. Yes. Yes. Okay, we got ten. Thank you. All right. Sweet. If you raise your hand, God sees you. <laughs> All right, hey, a couple things. Real quick, a couple more announcements. Uh, one is on Wednesday morning, every, every Wednesday morning, our, our leaders get together uh, just to pray for this ministry and to pray for the campus and to pray for a number of you guys, actually, by name and uh, to pray for people that we're trying to share the gospel with and those kinds of things. Um, but we do once a month, actually, we do an open prayer meeting uh, where we want kind of anybody and everybody to come. And this Wednesday will be our last one of the semester, our last one of the school year. We would love to have as many of you as can come come here 7 o'clock Wednesday morning um, just for 30 minutes is about what it is. Um, so if you come here for 30 minutes, we would love to pray with you and uh, pray for your summer, and, and pray for just things like that before we leave. So we'll send out a reminder, but 7 a.m. on Wednesday. Also, we've been mentioning this uh, every week. I don't know who Jenny is. Um, we've been mentioning this every Um That is awesome. Okay. Um, 8675309. Okay. Uh, so we mention this every week, but if, if as we talk through any of this stuff, manhood, womanhood, marriage stuff, um, we know that there are questions that come up. Uh, man, I'm watching, literally, it's like, okay, it's the song, guys, okay? I'm just going to say it now because I'm just watching, like, pockets get it every five seconds. <laughs> and so, I'm, so we'll just get it out of the way. It's the song. Um, okay. So if you, oh gosh, okay. 
Well, it doesn't, it doesn't fit in Russian opera, so I'm not sure you know it, um, or Southern Gospel. But, okay, so, so, okay, all right, if you have questions, uh, if you want to sit down and talk, man, text either Scott or Rachel or myself, and if you have questions that you would like us to answer tonight, as soon as we're done, or uh, next week in our Q&A, you can text them to this number right here. You can also raise your hand at the end of the night and ask us questions. But if it's sensitive or whatever, you can text that number. So just be aware of that as we get going. Um, Rachel said in there these, these reasons why or the, the view the world has of marriage and what its purpose is. And she started with what I think is the main one and really does encompass all of them. And that is that the world thinks that marriage is about happiness. I think all of them actually fit in that because I get married to get happy or I don't get married because I'm happier if I don't get married or I avoid it because my parents seem like they were unhappy or maybe we'll just live together rather than put a piece of paper on that because that ties us down and that might make me unhappy. And so in reality, all of the world's views of marriage are encompassed by my own personal happiness. That is the purpose of marriage for or against it or leaving it after five or ten years in it is this person no longer makes me happy. Um, and so this is, becomes the driving force for what marriage is about. But let's be honest that that's not just the world. That's, that's us, too. Like We, we think that way. Like I, can, I, can be, I, did, I did not go out and find the girl that I felt like would make me most miserable and then marry that one, right? Like, I, no, one of the reasons I married Amy is because I was happy with her, because she made me feel good about myself, because I loved being around her, because, because I thought being married to her would be something that would make me happy rather than unhappy, um, because it, it sounded unhappy to not be with her. And so I married her for that. So the question I, I want to ask is, is that wrong? My daughter just started this thing. She's only done it two or three times. She just started a couple weeks ago. My oldest daughter, Ella, who turns eight tomorrow, um, just, just started doing this thing where, like, she asked, I think she asked me for a puppy, like, a couple weeks ago. And I, of course, said no. And she, uh, and she, said, she said, but, Dad, that would make me happy. And, and that's kind of her thing that she's kind of started throwing out. This would be, but Dad, if you did this, this would make me happy, right? And, uh, and I told her, like, the very first time she said it, Ella, you know that as your dad, like, my goal for you is not to make you happy. That's not my job, and that's not what, that's, that's not actually what I want most for you, is for you to be happy. And that kind of t- surprised her, honestly. She's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Not to, but that's. You know, and she was kind of like, what do you, what do you mean? It's not, and, and I told her, no, what, my goal is your dad, and what I want for you more than anything else is, I, is to help you be like Jesus. That's what I want for you. And, and that, that thought kind of rolled around in her head for a few days, and then she, uh, at, uh, at the dinner table a couple days ago, she just kind of looked up at me and she said, so, Dad, you're saying you don't want us to be happy? <laughs> And I, I started to open my mouth to answer, and, and it really, I kind of had to pause for a little bit and think that, because I, I do, and, and, and that same question, I think, needs to come up when we talk about marriage and, and about God in any area of life. Does He want us to be happy or not? The world thinks marriage is all about happiness, and we say that's foolish, then what, like, 
what is it? And, and, and is God for or against that? What does God want for us? Specifically in this area of marriage, why did God create it? Why not just make a world in which individual, we all kind of live as individuals together? Like we're all just kind of here on the earth. Instead, he, like, he chose, this was his invention, his idea that man and woman would come together and be married. Why did he do that? What was his purpose for doing it? I want to try and answer that tonight by going to the two major passages in the Bible dealing with marriage. There are a number of places that hit on marriage. But the two major ones, one is from the Old Testament, and it's the foundational text that all the other ones come back to, and that is in Genesis 2. And uh, and then we'll go to the major one in the New Testament um, that builds off of Genesis 2. But if you want to go to Genesis 2, um, that's where we'll start for a little bit. And And I want to see what does the Bible tell us is the purpose for marriage? Why did God create it? Genesis 2, um, it's going to be 18 through 25, um, but I actually want to start you back at Genesis 127 real quick. This is what, this is what uh, God says about creation of human beings. 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Um, and you need, to, you need to just catch that and the significance of that kind of right up at the front. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Um, this was written in a day in which women were considered like not a whole lot more like higher than, say, cattle or whatever other property the man might own. A woman, for as long as she lived, belonged to the man of the household. She belonged to her father. He had absolute... Um, authority and you could even say ownership over her until the day that someone uh, else, another man, came and paid for her with a dowry and then she, was, she belonged to her husband and was, was his property at that point. And, and this was the view in much of the world that man is at the pinnacle and, and woman isn't really even like 1A. She's, she's something a little bit above, like, you know, a lot of the other things that man might acquire, but, but not too much. But here at the very beginning, the Bible is clear from the outset, both male and female created in the image of God, both of them uniquely reflecting the character and the image of God in ways specific to their gender, that they reflect God in unique and specific ways. And so these are critical things to keep in mind. 2.18 is where we're going now. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now you need to know, and you've heard this I'm sure, that all throughout the creation narrative there is this refrain that comes up over and over and over again. When God has made something, He looks down and then He says, and it was good. This is the way it was. So God created the light and the dark and the day and the night and the, and the waters and the sea and every time, and it was good. And it was good, and it was good, and he made the plants, and it was good, and he made the animals, and it was good. This is the first time in the narrative where the words, it is not good, are uttered. And it is when God looks down at the perfect creation that he has made, and man in his own image, in this beautiful garden, and in a great and wonderful relationship with God, his creator, and God still says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. As people made in the image of God, we are made in the image of a triune God. 
but is a God that is, has existed in the form of relationship from all eternity. That from, um, I don't, it's not from the beginning, they were before the beginning, there is no beginning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelled together relationally in perfect loving relationship. We are made in God's image and therefore we are relational beings who are made and designed to be in relationship. That's what we were made for. And so when God looks down and sees that there are, um, that there are human beings, or yeah, that man is alone in here, he says, it is not good. And so he wants to provide something for him. You need to know this, that marriage, as people who are made um, to be in relationship, that marriage is the innermost of those relationships. Of all the concentric circles, marriage is the innermost. And therefore, like the main way that that, I say the main way, um, one of the central ways that God meets that need for relationship within us. Not the only way and not the essential way. In other words, I'm not saying that you need it in order to be relationally satisfied, but it is the key way in most normative situations. Um, going to verse 19. Now, out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, the, that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So you saw, you may have caught it in here, the second time that this little uh, term comes up in verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. That idea of helper fit. First of all, notice he lists off all the animals that have been made and everything else, all these things that were there, and, and categories categorically says, no, that's not enough. There needs to be someone else, something different from that, a helper fit for him. What does that phrase mean? Um, well, it, it consists, just like in the English there, in the Hebrew it's two words. Um, the first one, helper, is ezer in the Hebrew. And it does not mean, when it says helper, it does not mean something subservient, um, like, like a servant who helps around the house or an assistant who does things. God didn't look down and say, you know what, man's going to have some long days out doing stuff and somebody's got to stay home and vacuum the garden. And so I'm going to make a woman to to be a helper for him, right? That's not actually the way this word helper is being used. This word actually, azer, is used more than any t anything else in the Old Testament. It is used to describe God. God as our helper. And when it describes God in this way, and I think this gives us a good key to this, it is describing when God comes and helps us, he's not my assistant He's not doing things for me to make things a little smoother. God is doing for me what I cannot do on my own. And God looks down and says that it's not good for man to be alone. He needs someone to come alongside of him and do what an individual is not meant to do on their own, what man in his, in his um, displaying of the image, but not fully, of God is on his own. He needs a helper fit for him. And then it uses this word fit, which means, it's kind of a tough one to get our minds around. It means like corresponding. It's also translated opposite sometimes. And so it has this idea of being like the same and different. This kind of matching. The best way I know how to describe it is it's, it's basically like talking about a right and left shoe. 
something that matches up, but at the exact same time, they're the same, but at the exact same time, they're different, and that's what makes them go together. Um, what man needed was someone just like him, but completely different from him. And when those things come together, then the image of God is fully displayed by both masculine and feminine traits. This is one of the reasons, by the way, kind of off, the, off on a tangent, one of the, the reasons why the Bible um, argues against the idea of same-sex marriage or same-sex um, relationships because there is an incompleteness to that. Part of the point of this is that the fullness of God is reflected, and, and um, Adam needs someone like and different from him, and that's why God creates woman to be together. And here we go to verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, may a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam, when he sees his wife, when he sees Eve, basically breaks out in song or in poetry there. It is. It's written in poetic form in the Hebrew, basically saying, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I needed. This is, is what the longing in me was for. And it says, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This, when I said that the Bible keeps coming back to this passage to talk about marriage a lot, specifically this verse is the one that gets quoted over and over and over again. That, that line right there, man will leave father and mother be, um, and cleave to the wife and become one flesh, that, that is quoted six times in the Bible. Um, it's here, it's in Matthew 19, it's in Mark 10, it's in 1 Corinthians 6, and it's in Ephesians 5, which is where we'll be landing. You need to know that that's a fairly radical statement, actually, in a society that was communal and specifically family-oriented. Like you, as we've talked about, your identity came from your family, and you didn't like pick up when you got 18 and move off to college and then go set out on your own. No, you lived with your family forever. You, like, you stayed in that household. Even if you got another house, it was just like right next to them. Like You didn't leave your parents. Your highest allegiance goes to the people who brought you into this world and who raised you. And the Bible says at the very beginning, the purpose is, though, that when a man meets a woman, that he has a new greater allegiance, that he has a new greater family, and something, uh, a new beginning is taking place. That this man is committed first and foremost to his wife and not, not anymore to his parents, not anymore to his family. Um, he says they will become one flesh. So here you go. First purpose of marriage described in the Scriptures is to create oneness between two different but alike people. To create relational oneness. That's, that's what it's kind of described. God made us for that sake, that two people would come together in their lives on every level, uh, not just physically, which seems to be described here that they're naked and unashamed, but not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally and socially and financially, comes together and mingles in such a way that it's hard to tell the, like, where one starts and one uh, ends, where one ends, where one begins, because there's a oneness, a level of closeness and uh, intimacy that is taking place. It is meant to be, marriage is meant to be the deepest, most intimate relationship around which humanity and society is built. 
society is built around um, families largely. And, and we've tried to kind of move from that as we become more individualized. But for much of history, it's built around families. And, and we have at the most furthest end, we have acquaintances, and then we have friends, and then we have distant family, then close family. And at the very center of that is your spouse. Uh, married spouse. And, and remember that the New Testament brings us something different that doesn't say, because of what we talked about last week, a single person is not left on the out even if they do not get married. Because the Bible says that a single person has family in the church um, and, and has the connection and intimacy they need in God Himself. And for that reason, they're not left on the outside, but God designed marriage to sit at the center of these things. Let's move over now to Ephesians 5. This is the key New Testament text that talks about marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through 33. And what we're going to read is part of what is known as a household code or a house code. The Bible is not the only one to have these things. They were actually fairly common in the first century. Philosophers and ethicists and moralists would write these different things about ethics and stuff, and oftentimes they would include what would be called a house code, which is kind of describing this is how a house ought to run. This is how it ought to be kind of in order and, and worked out. And so um, Paul has that at the end of 5 and into chapter 6. We're not going to get into chapter 6. We're just going to focus on this part, the marriage part of it. Um, verses, starting in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You can chalk these verses up as among the least popular Bible texts in our culture. Um, to stand up in the 21st century and read out wives, submit to your husbands in everything. As, as the church does to Christ, um, sounds crazy, sounds backwards, um, sounds like regressionist, sounds um, patriarchal and all of those things. And, and I was really tempted to try and spend a lot of time explaining this tonight. I had this whole list of the Jewish view of women and the Greco-Roman view of women that Paul is living in and then the Christian view of women and how that contrasts, how much historically, starting with Jesus and moving out, that the, the church has elevated women in their value and placed them up on equal footing. And I wanted to try and work through all of this, explaining this. We don't have that much time. So, for right now, let me just give you some brief clarification on these verses, what it is saying and what it's not saying. Um, first thing, it is not saying that women are to submit to all men that all women are to submit to all men, that men in general have authority over women in general. It's not saying that. It is specifically saying wives submit to their husbands, but they are not under the authority of any other man other than um, the leadership in the church, which we're all under that authority. Um, so they're like that, just like, just like the rest of us, but they're only here called to submit to their husbands. Um, and then there's this phrase there, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You need to clarify that because that could sound like submit to your husband like you're submitting in the same way that you would submit to Jesus, to your Lord. That's not what that word as means. Um, 
it's not saying submit to your husband like, your, like you submit to God. It's saying, no, no, submit to your husband as a form of submitting to God. So when you submit to your husband, it says that that is a way of obeying Jesus. He's not saying that you obey them just like you would obey Jesus. Um, and uh, let's see. So, yeah, it is important to kind of say this, that this is not a blind obedience to whatever he says. It's not something that whatever the husband says goes and the woman is expected to follow it. Paul doesn't describe that. The Bible doesn't describe that. This passage is also not saying anything about man or woman's worth or value. It's, it's not describing who's more important, who's better, who's more valuable. It is simply describing roles, functionality. This is actually a key issue to understand within the Trinity itself. Over and over again, the Bible will, will, will make it pretty clear that the Son serves the Father. That the Son obeys and does the will of the Father. Uh, but it never, it, this is described in function, but it never gives us a, this idea that He is of less value. No, the Orthodox view is that they're of the same essence, the same value, the same worth, but functionally, in His role, He chooses something subservient to, um, to submit Himself to the Father. Um, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, I mentioned to you that these household codes, or these house codes were fairly common in the first century, that, that writers wrote those a lot. But Paul contrasts with them in that he spends the majority of his time giving instruction to the men giving instruction to husbands, where in the pagan household codes, in the Greek household codes, it was almost all given to women, children, and slaves. A man doesn't have anything he's got to do except for be in charge. And women, this is how you submit to your husband, and children, this is how you submit to your father, and servants, this is how you submit to your master. Paul dedicates most of his time giving instruction to men. And his specific instruction is, love your wives. The other thing you need to know is, nowhere in Greco-Roman literature that we are aware of are husbands ever commanded to love their wives. Christianity is different. Paul comes in and says, no, your job, husbands, is not to make your wife submit. Your job is to love her sacrificially, like Jesus loves His church, like Jesus loves His people, sacrificing. You're supposed to love her like your own body. This kind of hints back at that idea of oneness. He says, when you love your wife, well, that's loving yourself in the same way that you would take care of yourself, in the same way that you would nurture your own body, that is what you ought to do with your wife. You put her needs in front of yours. You put her wants in front of yours. You sacrificially love her. And then Paul mentions here what the purpose of Christ's love was for the church. He says, He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having her cleansed by the washing of water, and to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The purpose of Christ's love for the church is sanctification, 
is splendor is glory. To make her beautiful. To make her more holy. To make her what she was always meant to be. And Paul says, that's how you're supposed to love your wives. With an eye on, with a view towards making her holy. Helping her to become more beautiful. We, we talked at the end of our series in Thessalonians that all of us, from the time that we are saved, all of us are on this road towards glory. That we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And there will be this one day, First John says, where we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And when our eyes are open, and when the new heavens and the new earth come, we will be um, arrayed in glory and splendor and beauty. And, and Paul says we're all on that road right now, and a husband's job and his heart ought to be just as Jesus does for the church doing whatever he can to see his wife flourish in that, to facilitate her in that. This is what headship is about. Not getting your way or being in charge, but sacrificing for your wife's flourishing and holiness. And actually, if you look back at Ephesians 4, just a chapter before, you'll see that this is the job of every Christian for every other Christian. In Ephesians 4, it says that we have all been given gifts uniquely for the sake of building up the body so that we will all grow up into maturity, which means this. I believe that it is also the wife's job to work towards the holiness of her husband, that she ought to be moving him towards those things in the same way. Now, I do believe that the husband is called to be the leader in this, um, but that the wife is to do the same thing. And that leads us to the second purpose for marriage, the greater purpose. So first of all, it is for oneness. Second, though, marriage is for holiness. It's, it's actually what the father intends for us in marriage is what I intend for my daughter. And that is that we become more like Jesus. That's why it is there. Um, now we come to verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's that Genesis verse again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was Genesis 2.24. But Paul actually reframes that verse, and he does something kind of mind-blowing, actually. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and um, cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And Paul says, now let me blow your mind. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. What Paul is saying is, I believe that that verse, when Moses penned it some 1,400 years before Paul, Paul says whether Moses knew it or not, that verse was designed to point to a greater reality. That that verse was designed to point us to something bigger and, and larger than that. To that it was designed to point us to Christ and His relationship with His church. That husbands in their sacrificial love are supposed to reflect Jesus. And wives with the joy that they have in receiving their husband's love. And in turn loving and honoring Him are supposed to rec reflect the church. And this brings us to the third and ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to display the gospel. To show off the gospel. Recognize this. Know this. God did not create marriage and then one day decide to send His Son and go, oh, you know what would be a great kind of picture of, of what I'm going to do with Jesus? 
Now, I believe, I can't prove this, I believe God, I, I know this part, that God knew ahead of time, before he even created the earth, God knew ahead of time that one day he would send his son to come and redeem it all back to him, to redeem a people of church. And I believe that with that in mind, God said, I've got this brilliant idea to show off the beauty of what I'm going to do one day through my son. And so God created marriage with that intention of showing off what he would one day do when he sent Jesus to redeem us back to himself, to save us to himself. Um, and so God knew that and he, he created this picture in marriage. Here is the crazy truth about marriage, all right? The crazy truth about marriage is that when the whole goal of it is my happiness, it cannot give me much, at least not for long. You can only give that to me for a short period and for spurts here and there. But when the goal is holiness and the gospel, it actually gives me happiness. Um, and this is actually true with almost every aspect of God. If what I want from God most is happiness, then I miss both God and happiness. But what I want from God most is God and His design for me, then I get both of those things. Um, and I do believe that marriage is meant to also make us happy, but that we find that most when we go towards God in holiness and in the gospel. So let me briefly give you, if this is the case, if marriage is not meant primarily for happiness, but for oneness, for holiness, and for displaying the gospel, then let me give you six random, out-of-order implications um, for marriage. If those three things are true, then it means this for marriage. Um, and I could probably give you a number more if I had more time and if I was smarter and all those things, but just going to give you six here. First one is this. Relational chemistry is not that important for a marriage. Um, so often, this is the way we talk about how we found someone. You know, we just went out and on that first date we just clicked. And it was like it was just so natural and easy. But that's also the way people talk about getting out of marriage a lot of times. It's like just fell out of love there. That, that connection was no longer there because we prioritize so highly chemistry in our relationship, compatibility in being able to come together. If the goal of marriage is holiness, displaying the gospel, and oneness of different and alike people, then chemistry doesn't matter that much. And here's the other thing. That's good news because chemistry, even if you have it when you start, won't last you. Um, my wife is a different woman than she was when I married her 11 years ago. She's just, she's not the same girl. I'm not the same guy. And so if our whole marriage was resting on the way Drew 11 years ago was and Amy was 11 years ago and how we connected, then that would have fallen apart. But that's not actually what our marriage is meant to be built on. Um, number two, hardship is not a sign that it wasn't meant to be. If the goal is holiness, not happiness, then I should expect hardship and actually weirdly thank God for it. Hardship is the natural result of two broken people living really closely together. Like it's going to be hard at times, but it is one of the ways that God uses 
to shape us and form us into holy people. Sometimes He shapes us when I lovingly help lead my wife towards holiness, when she lovingly helps lead me towards holiness. Sometimes that's how He does it. Sometimes He does that when we punch at it, not, not physically really punch at each other, okay? <laughs> Nobody call the cops. But um, when, we, when, we, when we come at each other and butt heads, but in that process, um, some of the brokenness gets stripped away and broken away. And so hardship is not, and this is, I think, so often where people go, when, when it doesn't flow naturally, when it gets hard, that means, I guess, this wasn't meant to be. And that's just not true. Number three, the marriage covenant is bigger than you and your spouse. When you get married, when you put a ring on another person's finger, you are making a commitment to display the gospel. And the gospel is not that Jesus came and tried hard, but in the end it was just too much work. And so he stepped back from it. The gospel is that at whatever cost, even at his own life, he laid it down for the sake of his bride. And he gave of himself, and he gave of himself, and he never, ever, until eternity comes, stops giving of himself. And that is the model for marriage. And that is why the covenant is so important. And that is why divorce is so hated by God, because it speaks against the very intention of what marriage is, which is um, the displaying of the gospel. When you say, for better or worse, it is a promise, yes, to your spouse, but it is a promise also to God, and it is a promise to your church family around you. Um, that you will be displaying and encouraging the, um, the church through your display of the gospel. If Amy and I are to divorce, we're foolish if we think that we're the only people that get affected by that. That has ripple effects through God's church. And so it, my marriage is bigger than just Amy and I. Number four, romance, laughter, sex, and fun are great byproducts of marriage, but they cannot sustain marriage. A friendship based in a commitment to what God is doing in each of you, can sustain marriage. Friendship sustains marriage. Um, This is probably the biggest area where God is revealing my own blindness and my ignorance, Um, is that I have, for much of our 11 years, 10 and a half years, whatever, for much of, I have put a lot of our eggs in this basket of romance and sex, and, and wanted that to be what marriage is, and, and any time that that wasn't able to hold all of that, which it can't, then I found myself growing increasingly frustrated and bitter and angry. Um, but I am learning that, that's, that those are wonderful byproducts, that they move towards oneness, but that they're not the main goal, that they aren't designed to do those things, that they can't do those, and those things, by the way, romance, sexual chemistry, physical attraction, humor, finances which are probably the top five, six things that people get married or draw together for, none of those things can propel you to holiness. None of those things move you closer to Jesus. They can, in the right context, if you are in a good friendship, they can aid you in oneness. And so husbands ought to pursue their wives in romance. Um, wives ought to pursue, their, there ought to be sex t- taking place in a marriage, but none of those things in and of themselves can move you towards holiness unless there's a friendship that's going on. What can move me to holiness is a friend who knows me, speaks truth to me, and gives grace to me. Number five, this would mean that we need a better process for choosing who we will date and who we will marry. 
we generally in our culture screen first. Um, we screen first based on the things that I just listed. Romance and finances and personality, humor, sexual attraction. And then we as Christians know that we're also supposed to have like a godly relationship. And so once I've narrowed the focus down to only the pretty girls that have a really great personality, then I'll date them and hopefully I can form a really good friendship with them. Tim Keller says in The Meaning of Marriage, that's backwards actually. That actually you start with those who are godly and growing and those that you can form a good, that is a good friend to you and then you can start to think through those other things. So I'm not saying that um, attraction to a person doesn't matter. I'm saying that we need a much bigger definition of what attraction is. Um, that, that it needs to be more than, it's like going out to buy, um, to buy a new car and um, removing every car from the lot that's not painted red. Because that one outside part of it, the red paint, is the thing that matters most to me. And then I'll see if there's anything good amongst the red cars. And, and we get, uh, it's, it's backwards. You look for one that runs well. You, you look for one that's well made. You look for one that's going to fit you and your family. And then, hey, if, if, there's, if you like the paint color, cool. Right? But you don't build on paint color. Um, number six, and I'll just briefly say this, marriage is a race to the bottom. That the goal of marriage is serving one another and putting someone's needs before your own. And that is actually what the goal of the Christian life is. And so it works really well that we are constantly trying to serve each other as a way of moving one another closer and closer to Jesus. All right, we'll call. Um, I'll have Rachel and Scott come up here real quick, and we'll try and spend. Um, we got we had about 25 minutes. We can try and answer some questions. So. Yeah, let's, uh, okay, so, oh, do we have the, let me take this out here. Still going? All right, cool. All right, so here's a, here's a few questions that have come in. Um, first is, should we pray for our future spouse? Is that a good thing to do, or is that a dangerous thing to do if we don't have a spouse? So, you guys have a thought on that? I guess it depends on what you're praying for. Um, you know, I think if, I think if, uh, so, you know, there's lots of scenarios, so I don't know what that person means by that. I would love to talk to you about it. But if it's, if, it, if your prayers are always centered around, God, give me a spouse, and who is it going to be, and make sure he's awesome or she's awesome, or um, 
protect them or if it's if it's if it's those kinds of things if if the if the goal of your prayer is again like I want to be happy and marriage is going to make me happy and so God give me what I want it um I don't I don't want to I don't want to downplay that but if it's only you know your heart and you know and so you have to kind of check that but but if now and again if, I, I think it would be okay I think it would make sense to to pray that um, to to think, you know, yeah, God, I want to be married, and 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 I would love for you to provide that, and I want it to be who you want it to be, and I want to be help me to be the kind of person that I need to be in order to be who they who they need, you know, for you. Yeah, I pray. I pray periodically for our kids' spouses, uh, future spouses. I pray, God, if if it is your will for them to be married. Um, and whoever that young boy is right now, whoever that young girl is right now, um, uh, I just pray kind of the same things that I want for them out of marriage, that God would be growing them right now and preparing them to um, love well and to, and to respect well and do those kinds of things. So I, I think those things are okay. So, yeah. Um, here's an interesting one. If God has such a high view of marriage, and if marriage has always been about holiness and displaying Christ's relationship with the church, why was polygamy allowed in the Mosaic Law? Uh, it's really a good question. Here's here's what I'd say. I would say uh, for uh, I would say for the exact same reason. This is actually a really similar question to what the uh, Pharisees asked Jesus. Um, is it uh, is it permissible to divorce your spouse? And Jesus says, "What does the law say?" They say Moses said we could do it. And here's Jesus' answer. Moses allowed that because your hearts were hard. But that was not the design. That was not how it was meant to be from the beginning. There is, in a world where husbands will abuse wives, you have to make a law that says divorce can take place. In a, in a, world, in a world in which they can, and I would say in a world in which women had no options outside of marriage, in which a woman who was not married was left with nothing, she had no trade, literally like prostitution was about as far as you could, it was like as much as she could be hoping for, then you, you had to allow for, I think, women to be, multiple women to be married to one man. But there is never actually a point in Scripture where it is. Uh, we never see polygamy lifted up. We see it described, but we never see it prescribed. And actually, almost all the places where it's described, um, the negative implications of that come out pretty quick. We see Jacob um, with Rachel and Leah and all the havoc that caused in both the marriage and with the kids. We see Abram with Sarah and Hagar, and we see the havoc that caused with both the marriage and the kids. And so it's Solomon. Yeah, Solomon, and we see the problems of Solomon, right? So it is never actually lifted up. There are things that are that that take place that are not that are not that the Bible doesn't say do this. It just says it happened um, because hearts were hardened. So I was going to add. I'm actually a friend who asked me about this um, a long time ago. I can't remember the scripture exactly, but um, one of the things it also says is that in the Old Testament, they told the elders to not marry uh, more than one wife because they could be too, I don't remember what, what it was, basically it could destroy them spiritually almost. Yeah, in, the, in, the, in actually the pastoral epistles in First Timothy and Titus that an elder must be a husband of one wife. Yeah. And so specifically that, that they could only be, it's described as a one-woman man or whatever in order yeah. to be a leadership of the church. That's true. There's a really interesting example in Second Samuel 11. It's this, the David and Bathsheba story. Mm -hmm. And I never quite got this until, 
until I had to teach teach through it. Um, so you know the story. If you don't, it's a great story, a crazy story. But so David basically steals another man's wife, has him killed, gets her gets her pregnant. Actually, let, let me get the order is he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant. He happens to be the husband happens to be a soldier in David's army. David has him killed, basically, and then and to cover up the sin. After he tries to get the husband to sleep with her, and he won't because he's an honorable man. Anyway, um, and then David, you know, takes her to be his wife, and 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 God takes his son, takes their child, and then so David prays. Is great. Second um, Samuel twelve is incredible. But anyway, after after David fasts and prays, and and God takes the child. Um, verse twenty four says, "Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon." And it says, "And the Lord loved him." And so, I, I thought, man, look, like David should feel guilty for like, I don't know. He ruined two people's lives. Two years at least. He should just walk around in dust and ashes, whatever it is they did, and feel bad, mope or something. And God said, no, do the right thing, which is now love, love your wife Bathsheba. She's your wife. Love her. And, and you see this messed up situation. And so many times in, in the Old Testament, some of these laws were set in place to protect the women. Um, and, and, and so God would would say, no, you need to take care of me. Like, as much as we would complicate and mess up his plan, God would, would, would do the honorable thing. And so God doesn't seem to be so, um, you know, you think about that question about polygamy, and, and, and we think about it today because of a person's rights as a person and individual this and that and how dare he and how dare she and all these things. And and God, you know, those things don't seem to be as big a concern as, as, as God's, as, like, sin in their heart and rebellious. And and so sometimes we get bent out of shape over things that God doesn't seem to be as bent out of shape about because he's looking at the bigger picture and looking at the heart. Another question we got said, how might people who have grown up with unhealthy examples of marriage and people who have grown up with healthy examples of marriage process and prepare for their own future marriages differently and how can a person who has had an unhealthy example of marriage from their parents avoid bringing that baggage into their future marriage um, so I can speak about that a little bit I my parents are still together um, love the Lord so I had I had a not a perfect example but a pretty good example my husband comes from um, a divorced family um, and so I, I can say we did not um, we did not realize how how many expectations we had coming into marriage from such different backgrounds. Um, that was definitely that was definitely a huge challenge. But what we did after the fact that I would encourage you to do beforehand um, and before marriage, we just started spending a ton of time with with um, marriages and families who really loved Jesus and who really um, had healthy marriages, and we. We asked them questions, and we tried to figure out as best we could, um, you know, the, the things that they were doing that modeled this is what this is supposed to look like. And again, I had some of that coming into it, but I, I mean, Ryan really had 
um, there, there, was, there was a lot that he wanted to just soak in and learn. Um, and, and we didn't realize how necessary that was. That was part of why our first, our first year really was difficult. Um, I had these expectations of this is, how, this is what a godly marriage looks like. Um, and he had just completely different, had never seen anything like that. Um, so that would be the thing that I would say. If you guys have stuff to add. I mean, this is going to sound overly simplistic, but if you're loving Jesus and trying to and pursuing Him, and allowing God to form and shape you to be like Jesus, and if and if your heart in is uh, again godly things and His kingdom and those things, I mean, so that takes care of a lot of things, and then also. You, you, you begin to become aware of these expectations that you don't know you have, but you have. And, and the, the only way you figure out you have expectations is when it goes wrong. And so that's when you get slapped upside the face is when you find out you had expectations you didn't know you had. So, so you can't, uh, I mean, I do premarital, I've probably done 20 different premarital counselings with couples. And I, there's probably some in here I'm doing right now or I haven't done. Are Bowen? Anyway, not Bo. I didn't do Bo's. Um, Joel and Tori, are they in here? No? Okay, I'm doing theirs right now. But anyway, um, so good. Uh, because sometimes I look at, at, at couples that are engaged and, and, I, and I wanna, they want to be prepared and they want to try to tackle everything before and they want to try to fix everything before they get into marriage. And at best, this is what I tell them, at best what you can do is find out what a red flag is. That's the best thing you can do is Oh, that's a red flag. That's going to be a problem. Yep, that's going to be a problem. Um, and 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 you can act like you fix it now, but guarantee you that thing. You just you just chop you just cut the weed, and then you're going to let it rain. It's going to rain, and the weed's going to grow. Life's going to happen, and those things don't go away that quickly. And so, so like this is why I say if you're if you're loving Jesus, pursuing Him on a regular basis, then then you're living a life of repentance. You're, you're seeking to, to put others' needs ahead of your own. I mean, those things take care of so many things. And then you, and then you realize along the way, oh, wow, I have crazy expectations. I'm a crazy person. I am crazy selfish. I did not know this. What the heck? I'm married to a mirror who's reflecting all my flaws. What the heck? Why, why is this mirror so angry at me? Uh, I mean... That's just my life, but anyway. Dude, there is no, I mean, we're, we, we have to remind ourselves that we're talking about, like, people who have the Holy Spirit in them. And so, like, there's, no, like, no matter what your background is, like, that's possible, right? Um, this is, but uh, to sound like a broken record, also why the church matters so much. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't get to see healthy relationships, that you should be in community and church where you get to see healthy relationships. And Sunnybrook actually has a marriage mentoring program. Mm-hmm. Where engaged couples and even married couples and stuff get assigned to older couples in our in our uh, church who, who who kind of mentor them through those things. So um, here's another one, real quick. Our culture is trending towards waiting a lot longer to get married. Thoughts on how wise it is to wait until you're established to get married. Um, I'll just say, and this is this is not like uh, canon. This is this is not a, like a moral thing necessarily, but I believe wisdom. I believe the culture's trend is to allow relationships younger and younger and to expect marriage later and later. Mm. And I believe that both of those should probably be pushed the other way, right? Um, that uh, I think, especially in the church, like when we 
allow kids to like kiss each other when they're 11 and 12 and then say, now don't do anything past that for two decades. <laughs> um, we're just asking for trouble, right? Like, and so even on kind of like a purity level, like I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, and so I, my, my tendency is to think that we should not wait. Like if you're waiting because like it gives you the opportunity to use singleness for what it is, to serve God more, um, like devotedly with like a more single-hearted devotion stuff and to go do things that you can't do when you're married, awesome. But if you're waiting so that you can like build up your retirement program or move further up in a company or something, I don't, I don't get that necessarily. I don't. Um, here though is one of the one of those prime examples of like a one-on-one -on -one conversation is really helpful mm -hmm. because there's some of you in here who goes, oh, so you're saying I should just get married next month? And we go, no, 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 not you. Uh, <laughs> You know, and so yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so but but you know, so it really does. It it depends on the person. It depends on the relationship and those things. Um, before, we, so I wouldn't just say everybody just get married as fast as you can. I would just say I trend a little bit more towards earlier rather than later for waiting a while to date, um, waiting a longer time to date, and then like not spending forever like three year engagements or anything like that. Can I can I can I uh, say something? For four-year parents, okay. Now that I have a 15-year-old, he's getting older. I'm starting to see things differently a little bit. Um, so, your parents may know you pretty well, and if they're saying, "I don't think you're ready," that's maybe something worth listening to. Now, you know, if you've if you've not come from a Christian home, or if you've come from a, a situation where your parents aren't seeking after the Lord and the God's godly things for you. I mean, that's something to weigh and to consider. Mm -hmm. But even then, but even then, I mean... If, I would if, ask them why. Yes, seek, seek to know why and, 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 you know, and sometimes your parents are wanting you to be responsible and wanting to make sure you, you're going to be, you're going to be responsible and you're going to be taken care of because they worry about you because they love you and they care for you and they can't, they don't want you to struggle. You know, all those things that as parents we have and I don't want any of my kids to struggle, and yet I know if they don't struggle, they are going to grow. Okay, so as a parent, i got to get over it. And I'm not telling you to tell your parents to get over that. Um, but So be, be patient and be gracious with them because they may know something you don't, and because they're looking after your best interest. But at the same time, you need to get to a point where if you can say, okay, God, Dad, I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. I'm thankful for your advice, and I really want you to help me, cause, but I feel led to to do this, you know, if that's where you feel led, then you you go for it. But if you're, by the way, again, if your parents and maybe your friends and hopefully other older people are all saying no, then yeah. I would really, really listen to that, and yeah. I would not. Sure. So it's good. Well, I don't know if this was addressed. Um, so I drew. I talked to you about this at Albuquerque a couple years ago, and it kind of changed my perspective. And I think maybe there are people here that can hear it too. But I always kind of grown up with parents that said like. Divorce was never in our vocabulary. It's never been even thought of, um, and then happened anyway. So, with that like thought, wondering like what kind of approach we should have to divorce as we marry, which sounds kind of weird, but should we never talk about it? Like that would never happen, yeah. Yeah. and then like never address it, or should it be something that should be on our radar? And I remember you had good advice for that. Trying to remember what I said. Um, <laughs> I really, I, I still, I still 
tend, trend towards that. There is a, there is a divorce is not an option naivety. That's just kind of like not even aware of, like we'll never do it because you're not even considering like the problems and how hard marriage really can be, mm-hmm. right? So there's that kind of like, no, nothing will go wrong with us. Like we love each other and that's dumb. And that leads to, and that really does, like, no, it would never happen to us. We could never be those kinds of people. That would, I remember my dad saying to me one time, like, and my, my parents were people who said divorce is never an option. Like, they said that to each other, and they said that to us, which is cool for us to know as kids. Like, divorce is never an option. I remember my dad saying to me later, I think I was in college, telling me there have been a couple times when if it wasn't for the ring on my finger, I probably would have left. Um, but it was because of it was because of the commitment I made that divorce was not an option, and I think that that's the right way to think about it. So he's not saying divorce is not an option because we just loved each other that much. Um, no, it can always be that hard. Divorce is not an option because I promised her and God that I wouldn't, and that's and that's kind of the difference between like a, a naivety that doesn't deal with it and then like gets blindsided by that, and a yeah, this is going to be really hard sometimes. There are going to be times when divorce sounds easier. We can, we can both admit that right now. We can say that there will be times when it may sound harder or it may sound easier to get divorced. But even then, we won't, I think, is the right way to, to, to address that. Yeah, I got a question. So, as like, a member of the body, what is our responsibility to fight for and lift up marriages in the church? And are there some practical ways that like, we can that. Like, do we have a responsibility to do it, I guess? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're asking as single people, as college as people? Single, or, just like, or as just in general, any yeah. member of the church, yeah. or like marriages in general in the church, mm-hmm. or like even marriages that like, you're connected with? I, I know I can speak as a wife um, in just saying that <laughs> I, that it's something that I, my mind is there. Like when I'm getting together with the other women in my life group and our kids are playing, I'm thinking through how I can encourage their marriages. Um, I'm thinking through how I can um, help some of their thinking. Sometimes, sometimes I know, and I'll, I'll just speak for, I would say sometimes women can get together and just want to talk about, you know, um, the difficulties that they're experiencing, but, but sometimes it cannot be from a heart that's seeking to do what God wants. Sometimes it can be with an attitude of, um, I'm going to complain. And so I know for me, I, I, I try to be quick to confess, you know, my own, like, well, here's where I'm struggling and something to think about. Um, but also just speaking truth to one another in those things and, and, and encouraging them um, to be the best wives that they can be because that's what they have control over is their own attitude and, and um, their relationship with the Lord and, and the things that they're thinking. I think, I think if one of you asked me, now, don't all of you ask me this, but if one of you asks me... Everyone text Scott. Um, <laughs> please don't. Uh, like, in an informal city, situation, setting, if you said, hey, how are you and Ryan doing? I think I would, to me, you asking me that is different than somebody in my life, another couple in my life, another guy in my life group doing. I kind of expect another guy in my life group to do that because we, we try to do that with each other. And so I usually give canned answers. I give answers that are real and, you know, hey, he gets it, he's a married guy, well, you know how it is, it's whatever. Um, or it's, oh, it's great, we're doing fine. Um, but if you ask me that, I have to think through that differently. And that actually, I think I would, I think that would be a really good thing because now all of a sudden I'm going, okay, wow. Mm. You know, one, you know, I want to give you an accurate picture 
and I also, but I also am kind of challenged by this. I, gosh, I want to have a good answer for that question, to be honest. And so if, if, if you, if, if I knew, if, if, that, if we created a culture where, where you guys ask those kinds of questions to older couples because you care about them, and be, don't ever feel intimidated to ask that question. Like, that would be awesome if you did that. I think it would be awesome. I think it'd be really good. So, and wisdom on that would probably be good for guys to ask out that question. Um, you know what I mean? Like, and, well, yeah. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, not, not for Scott's problem, but just for in general. Sure. Better yeah. for guys to ask guys that question. Yeah. Rather than guys to ask girls, hey, is your husband a huge jerk? But I think that's actually a really cool thing to, to yeah. think about that yeah. question from single people like yeah, challenging. I think about like the that. whole gender thing. So. <laughs> Alright, so. I don't know if this is addressed either. I kind of missed the first part. But, so I'm in uh, Teachings of Jesus earlier in this class. Some of you might have been in that. But um, we're talking about marriage today a little bit. Basically, God's will pertaining to marriage and stuff like that. So um, I'm going to ask you the question for you guys, the question that we were asked. Um, so how does God's will pertain to marriage and, like, when and who and when we're ready. So, like, what happens when we marry uh, and if, if we're ready? You know? I mean, like, how do we know, like, say, if this is the one God wills for us or if this is the time that God wants to be made? That kind of question? Is that? Basically. Okay, so how does God's will pertain to things like who we will marry and when and timing, how, that kind of stuff? I don't believe that God has one soulmate for you that. He, when he thought you up, he thought this person up, and he designed this person to be perfect for. I don't believe that, um, and because if, because I think that ruins people, first of all, because they they get married, they think they think they're not going to have any problems. Divorce is an option. We love each other so much. We're perfect. We're soulmates. We were made for each other, and then like, and then the weeds grow, the weeds grow, and you go oh. Maybe I got it wrong. And the moment, especially women, sorry, but in my experience, especially when the women turn and they go, I got it wrong, it's hard to turn that switch back. Um, and in men too. But, but when they go, oh, I got it wrong, I married the wrong one. So anyway, back to your question. I don't think that's the case. I think, I think you can marry a million different women. And be, and not at once. <laughs> that would be stupid. First of all, it would suck for everyone involved. Um, so, with that being said, do you think that God intended you to be married to who you were married? So yeah, yeah. So here's how I here's how I approach that. Um, I think I think God is sovereign in control, and I think obviously He knew we that I would marry Ryan, um, but I don't necessarily believe in the moment. You know, as I'm as I'm praying about this, God is is she the one? Is she, you know, we've been dating for a little bit. Is she the one? Um, I don't got I, I didn't. You know, I had actually had a professor kind of challenge me a little bit in that to help my thinking, um, and help me see that okay, she may or may not be. I just need to continue to be faithful to God and continue to look for His signs and continue to feel His peace and and then at some point go, all right, I'm I'm I feel good about this, I get confirmation from my community, and I'm choosing to do this, and God, I'm choosing to, you know, my first covenant was is with Him, 
to love her, and then, and then my covenant was with her. So, so I don't see it as like she's the only one I see, that I could have married. I see it as, as I was running towards God, and she was running towards God, and I just happened to look next to me and think, she's cute. <laughs> and she's running the same direction I'm running, so let's hang out. We'll see. And then, it, and then it progressed. But but I will say, once that commitment is made, then that yeah. then that person exactly. has become who God has exactly. for you. Exactly. You know. That, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. As a follow up, I know you said some kind of question. Uh, so you know you hear those stories about sometimes guys are like, so I found her and I just thought I'm gonna marry her and then I did. Um, so is, does that does that actually happen, or is it just kind of like stories that some people say just to kind of like make it sound more romantic, you know, like how we met, how they got married, and stuff like that? Uh, so also to go with that is like, how did you know and uh, to make that decision to, with that? If I had that thought, it was because I thought she was really a, really hot, <laughs> but I had no no like whatever. I had no idea what I was doing. Both of us, we talk about it. We, we have no idea what we were doing. And we, we were so different, like different people. Marriage has really changed us for the better. So, I mean, I, I would wonder if people have that kind of, oh, when I love at first sight, marriage at first sight, like how many times have you had that? And then this one stuck, and so that's because it's, so I don't know. I mean, I think it happens. I think it definitely, definitely happens. I would assume it happens with people only once, and they marry the person, and they're happy for the rest of their life, together the rest of their life. I'm sure that happens, but I don't think that's the way God operates all the time. Yeah, we're not advising to go <laughs> seek spouses out that way, yeah. right? Anything else? I just got this one real quick, I'll read it. If I believe in getting married early, and I know my partner is not interested in getting married until they are established, how could I address this? Or should I? Does this conflict of interest have significance, or would it truly be better to wait until they are ready? That's a good question. Um, Very specific question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically, I'm speaking. for a friend. A friend of mine. <laughs> I, I think... I think it depends on what they mean by established and what their time frame is and thing of that. It is possible to have um, what Keller, what Tim Keller calls a pseudo-spouse in that you have this person that you know only belongs to you and that you can go to through for relational support and that can be a really good friend and you have someone to take to you know weddings and outings and, and all that stuff and yet you're not committing yourself to them. And so you're, you're trying to wring a lot of the benefits from it without actually like making a commitment to that person, just kind of stalling indefinitely. And, and I think like if a person, like, like again, so it kind of depends on, on what this person means by waiting until we're established. If they mean we're freshmen and let's, you know, grow up a little bit, that's cool. But if they go, no, I think, I mean, I probably want to wait till I'm, you know, another five, six years. And, and I think I would go, why are you dating? Like, for five, why are you dating if you know it's not even a possibility for five or six years? Well, why are you dating someone if you know that you don't want to be married to anybody for, for that far out? Um, it just seems like you want a lot of benefits of someone close to you without commitments to that person. Um, and so I think that that's something to at least be aware of. 
That's good. Did you see one came in? No, one came in. Um, at what point of your relationship should you talk to your significant other about past sexual sin? That's a good question. What did you guys say? Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll share. Um, I remember sitting in front of Dennis Dorm uh, in college, sharing my past with with Ryan, and it was it was when I noticed that we started talking about the future more serious. And and so I, for whatever reason, I didn't. Again, I had I was an idiot back then. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just felt I just sensed like conviction from the spirit that says before you go any further talking about future you need to talk about your past and so that was you know I don't know at what point you know you're dating you're dating you're getting to know it's not really you're not really uh, there's levels of vulnerability I mm -hmm. think that you you need to keep guarded um, but when you when you're you get to those I, I, I see it like cones on a highway okay you're driving each each cone is like a, a new marker and 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 I wish I I wish I had each of these markers defined, but but you know when you first meet and then you go on a first date, that's a marker, okay? And then you decide to go on another date, that's a marker, and then you decide to whatever. You make it a month, okay? And then you make it so whatever the markers are, of of like we're hanging out, we're we're getting to know each other, we're asking each other questions about our past. I don't think you dive into that stuff right away. I think at some level you. You, you slowly open up, and it's just wise. Some people are, and some of you are just wired differently to just, it's all right here. First, first day, this is my life, you know? And, and, and I think that may, that may even work for you a little bit. I don't know. Um, I would just say be, be careful, I would be though. guarded about it, though. Yeah, you don't want to create a false intimacy yes, with that's somebody. that's the issue. That's the danger by yes. just, you know putting it all out there. So, so yes, if you're starting to get serious, um, you know, and, and you're praying through that and you're, you're, you know, you know that it's time, then, then, then do that. Um, and you do need to be open and honest, but I just, yeah, that's the danger yeah. is, is creating this. Exactly. Never use, never use like past hurts. Okay. And, and past struggles and as a, as a manipulative tool to get closer emotionally with somebody. That'd be really, really dumb for you to do it for for you and and for them. It's just, I mean, you got to think like this is really why I'm doing this. I'm trying to get close to this person, so I want to share something really deep because because then she'll like me or then he'll like maybe he'll feel closer to me, and that man that's really dangerous. Or even think that you need to do that if you're just getting to know somebody and your friends yeah. don't feel the pressure of yeah. oh I have to you know let them know yes, this. Yes. You don't need to you don't need to feel that in the beginning. Should happen, I'd say it should happen before engagement, but not way before engagement. Like if you're kind of a even a specific thing. Anything yeah. else? <laughs> it's not after. All right. After. We'll uh, we'll wrap up there and then next week we'll next week we'll devote kind of a whole night to answering your questions and stuff. So um, like I said, feel free to call us if you if you want to talk to anything more intense. But pizza, uh, pizza, but they're not quite warm yet. They're getting there, so just wait. Stick around. Hey.